have you ever wondered why the Bible is so confusing to understand? Or why Genesis is at the beginning and Revelation is at the end? You ever been curious as to why there's a New Testament and an Old Testament? Or what does that even mean? Well, I'm sure these are all questions that some of us have all asked at some point. So that's what Bible school is all about. We're going to go through the Bible and we're going to talk about the semantics of the why, the how, and most importantly, the who. If you'll ride this out with me, we're going to go cover to cover through the Bible and dig deep and see the mysteries that God has revealed to us through this beautiful love letter that he calls his word. You've just tuned in to Bible School with Reverend Kojo. What's going on, good people, and welcome to Bible School. I'm Reverend Kojo. I'm so glad you decided to join in and tune into this. Now, when I say that this particular passage of Scripture has been giving me fits, um, I know it's taking me longer than typical to put it out, but that's because I wanted to make sure not only was it, was it recorded with quality, but that we, we, we sit here and we explore what God is really saying to us in Revelation 11. I can, I can tell you what scholars say. I can go through this thing and we can talk about it, but I really want to give us a, the opportunity to really hear from heaven and to really get a grasped understanding of this passage. Because to be honest with you, this is this is a passage of scripture that I don't necessarily, we don't have to, to say what does, you know, why, why it's not really relevant to the Christian, really on the surface. But of course, all of scripture is relevant to the, the Christian when we dig deep. Um, and this is one of those passages that really is like, it's very Jewish. Um, it's got very Jewish, Jewish undertones. And, and other than the fact that you be nosy, um, it really doesn't have a whole lot of stuff for us to be, you know, to dig with. But this is yet the Bible and God is yet speaking. And there's so much for us to uncover. So we're going to hop into this. I do want to start. I want to start at this place because I do want us to understand biblical timeline and I'm not talking about a complex timeline I'm talking about like a very broad timeline but a very important timeline because in the in the beginning when when the in the beginning you know at Genesis where he says in the beginning God created the heavens of the earth we have a record of 2,000 years of only Gentiles okay now what happened in verse one between verses one and two whether we got millions of years there or not you know short of gap theory we have two roughly 2,000 years of Gentiles now Anything, everything else, you know, whether, you know, cause y'all know, I kind of sort of believe in gap theory, regardless of whether gap theory is a thing or any of those things, we're going to just say we have 2000 years of Gentiles only. Okay. Then Abraham and Abraham's seed happened. And when Abraham and Abraham's seed happened, we get 2000 years of Jews and Gentiles. Okay. So you have the chosen of pe people of God from them being in, in, in Egypt and then them being in captivity in Egypt and then Moses busting them out <laughs> and then them wandering in the wilderness and then them getting in Canaan and then building Jerusalem and then they're getting Kings and they get in the judge. Well, they get judges and then the Kings and all of that stuff. We, 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 we have 2000 years of that where they're Jews and Gentiles. Okay. Then we have Jesus, Jesus comes along and then we get 2000 years that we know of. We're, we're currently in the like year 2019. Um, of 2000 years of the church where there is no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. I've said all of that today for you to understand that where there was no difference in, in today's age, the Bible, the, the new Testament says in Christ, there is no different distinction between Jew and Gentile. 
Here we come again in Revelation 11 where there is a clear distinction. There's going to be a clear, succinct, succinct distinction. We're going to go back to Jewish language, Jewish custom, and, and you kind of have to understand that we're not in the church period in, anymore, okay, to understand what's being said here and why this is relevant and why I believe what I believe about the Jews and why I believe what I believe about the church and all of that stuff, okay? Hold on to that file, click save, okay? I also want you to understand that when we deal with the 70th week of Daniel, I want you to think about it in two halves, Three and a half weeks or three and a half years and three and a half years or three and a half weeks. Some people, you know, that, that week year thing is interchangeable, but it's a little year. Even though the Bible may mention the, the, the week, it, you know, it's interchangeable. But I want you to think of it, think of today as the first half of the three and a half years. Okay. Um, and, and I'll explain to that to you again, why that's important. I also want you to keep in mind that this particular chapter is another one of those difficult books to de- decipher. Okay. And so when you start looking at it, I want you to, I want you to come, come to it with your focus eyes, because it's not one of those things that's super simple, super, Oh, that's cut and dry. It's one of those things where you're going to do a lot of inferring. You're going to have to look specifically at each word and ask the question, why is it there? You're going to probably have to look at King James new revised standard version. And if you read Greek and Hebrew, that probably would help. Um, and you might even have to go to New Living Translation as well and compare them. This is this is not going to be one of those easy reads. It's not going to be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. No, this is this is a difficult read. Okay, now that we've kind of gotten that, let's dive in to Revelation 11. I'm just going to go ahead and warn you, it's it's going to get hairy, and it's it might this might be one of the longer podcasts. Um, I will go ahead and tell you that this is the third time that I've tried to record it, um, and it's been extremely long. And I'm really trying to be succinct. But I also want to be in depth about it. So we're going to we're going to see what happens. All right, here we go. Revelation 11, verse one, we find these words. And there was given to me a reed unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now, I, like I just told you, we just did this rundown of timeline. Some people are going to try to apply this to the church. This is not the church. The church is in heaven. The church has been raptured. Okay, so so all of us from from Jesus being here on earth to the rapture, we're gone. Those of us who confess Jesus Christ are gone. All right. And so, but people want to apply this to the church, but it does not work if you understand church history. Okay. Because we're talking about the temple of God. There is the temple of God during the church period is the body. Okay. The body, the body, the body, the physical body and the collective being of people. It's not a literal places. Now we've built churches. We got beautiful churches with beautiful columns and pillars. We have smart fog lights in some churches. We have bright lights in other churches. We have screens and music in, in the, in the black Christian traditions. There are certain chords that we hit in worship and they make us feel something in, in other traditions. There are strings that they play. And they, they make us feel some something in other in other churches. It is the baseline. It is the drums. It is the things we have built church, but church is not the building. The church is the being. Okay, it is the 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 literal whole, uh, body that is in, in wrapped where we welcome the spirit of God to come live and reside. That's why it's so important to live holy. That's why it's so important to live righteously. And what is holiness? You know, to ask that question, we're not talking about that today, but I want you to be thinking about that. What, what is holiness? What is righteousness? What does please God and what pleases God? According to the new Testament, new Testament, do we infer from the old Testament to that? Because if the church is held in the body, okay. If the church is held in the body, what would constitute a holy orifice now, because we're going to talk in a minute about the holies of holies about the Jewish temple. And the holies of holies is 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 um set apart. 
Now, in, in just a verse, we're going to talk about what's consecrated space and what's not consecrated space. If the dwelling of God is your body for the church, for those of us who are, are Christians who have confessed Christ, there still has to be a consecration process. There still has to be a place that is the holies of holies. That, that we have set apart that there are things that we will not do it because it disturbs the spirit of God inside of us. And if it doesn't disturb the spirit of God inside of you, that means you have not let him get comfortable enough in your, in your, in your body to make it home. Okay. That's just my little, that's my little side note. I thought it, w- it would be important because I wanted to differentiate to you what the temple is in, in, in Jewish thinking and in church thinking. Okay. Because we know in the church period, there, there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, but outside of the church period there is. Okay. Now this particular verse we're talking about right here, um, is located in Jerusalem. We're not anywhere in the world, but Jerusalem, we're not in heaven. We're, we're not, we're not below the earth. We're not in the bottomless pit. We're in Jerusalem. We're in the physical place of Jerusalem. That's why people got so excited when Jerusalem became a physical place again. When, when they, when Israel was granted, um, it's, it's, it's location and not only just location, but the physical place by which it was in the world. That's why it was so important because it, it is prophesied that the temple will have to be rebuilt. And when the temple is rebuilt, then Jesus is coming back. Then these, 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 um, these others that we're going to talk about later in here are coming back. And to understand that they're coming back speaks volumes to the prophecy that God is not a liar. You know, and I believe that as Christians, and especially in my life, I do not believe that God lies. I don't believe that God does things that are um, out of the way. I don't believe that he, he's a deceiver. I believe that he is good and light and truth. I do believe that. But, how, but because we're intelligent beings, we want evidence to point toward him. And this is why a lot of people get excited about the temple being rebuilt is because it, that's evidence pointing toward him. How could he make prophecy 2000 years ago and how could he predict such things 2000 years ago? And here we, we see them happen coming to coming to fruition. There hasn't been a temple in 2000 years. And now they're talking about it. Now, uh, Israel is a place and Jerusalem is a place. It is an established country. And even though there's turmoil in the middle East all the time, there's always been turmoil in the middle East all the time since Genesis. And so understanding that when we understand that we can understand that this is the literal Jerusalem we're talking about. This is why people get excited about it. Okay. Now I want you to also understand that this is one of three times in the new Testament that the rebuilding uh, temple is required for the passage. Okay. There's the Olivet discourse. You remember when Jesus is talking about in in three days, I will destroy this temple. And then he he gives them this discourse, basically a timeline of what's going to happen from, from this day to his crucifixion, to the time in between, to his return. He gives them this, 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 this discourse. Um, it's the last of the five discourses in Matthew. Um, but it's also recorded in Luke 21 and Mark 13. Uh, but the one in Matthew is Matthew 24. Uh, but we, but we, we see that there's this required of the temple being rebuilt and this temple being rebuilt is significant to the return of, of Jesus. It is significant to the, the, the triumph of, of Jesus. It is, it is significant to the reclaiming of the earth. And so people anticipate this for that reason. Now it's, it's also, uh, required for passage in second Thessalonians two and right here in this verse. Okay. The reckoning of the temple is tantamount to the claiming it. I want you to know we, we could go through the Bible tonight and, and we could take so much time and I could go and I could tell you that about how, um, the rebuilding of the temple or the reckoning of the temple always precedes judgment because judgment always starts at the house of God. I could go through that and, and we could go verse by verse, but I don't think that's going to be necessary. But I am going to say this much is that whenever God gets ready to judge the earth, first he comes and he judges the church. Okay. 
He comes and he judges the church and judgment always begins at the house of God. God is not one of those people who is sweeping around everybody's front door before he sweeps around everybody else's. He cleans up his house. Then he steps out to the earth. All right. But a lot of times he comes and his house is such and such disarray. His house is such and such disarray that he doesn't make it outside of the earth, outside to the earth. Um, and we, we see that over and over again. It's like for some reason we, we serve this omnipotent, omniscient God who makes promises and we put fleeces before him and we do all these things and he blows our mind. We worship him. We fall down before him. And then all of a sudden we get bored with him because he's not speaking right now. And when he's not speaking and we don't feel the rim of word or we don't feel his presence near, all of a sudden we go and we wander and we want to find something that we can see. We see it all, all throughout the book of, of Judges, all throughout Exodus. We see it all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We, we get so wrapped up in, 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 in what we can see and what we can feel that we forget what he's done. Okay. We forget what he's done. But judgment always begins at the house of God. Now, let's think of it this way. If the house of God is both synonymous with the, the body of Christ, the literal grouping of people and the body that you dwell in, judgment always starts at the house of God. God is not going to uh, flip your life upside down or flip the things around you because you're upset with them without getting you together. He's not going to elevate you. Now, this is, this is a word. He's not going to elevate you until you get some stuff right. Now, I've, I, I have to tell you this. There are some hard lessons that I've had to learn. I have been a, an enterpriser my entire life. Started my first business at five. Started my first business where I made a turn to profit at 11. I've always been an enterpriser, but never been able to maintain money until I learned how to tithe. Parents tried to teach me how to tithe at five. Said it wasn't, that was too much money. And so from allowance to starting businesses to all of my enterprising and all of the stuff could never hold on to money, could never see it turn a profit. And all of a sudden I'm swimming in more than enough because I learned how to tithe. Hard learner. Judgment starts at the house of God. The house of God is first you and then it's the dwelling where the men assemble. In this particular passage, because we're out of the church age, the house of God is the temple. Oh, but there's not a temple. And that's where we are. We're, that's the problem. He's coming to judge the world, but there's not a temple for him to dwell in. And the men are not there. And since the men are not there, what is he to do about it? He's got to build a temple. There's no men for the spirit to carry because the church is gone. Okay. Cause that's the house of God. The people who are gathering in the church that's the house of God. What do we do when men are not present? He's got to build it and he's got to make good on his promise. Come on, hear me. We've got to make, he's got to make good on his promise to the Jews. And since he's got to make good on his promise to the Jews, he's got to go build a temple. They rejected their Messiah. We, this could have been simpler, but since they didn't, Here's where we are. Verse two, verse two, but the court, which is it, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot 42 months. This is not a vision. This is direct instruction. He's, he's saying, get it together. This is what I'm about to do. Luke 21, 24. I want you to see this and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and they shall lead away captive into nations and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of Gentiles until the times of Gentiles are, have been fulfilled. Y'all, this is, this, is, this is deep because this is what we see right now going on in Jerusalem. This is what we see right now. On the, on the, on the Dome of the Rock, where the temple is supposed to sit, sit I'm sorry, on, on, on the Holy Mountain, where the temple is supposed to sit, sits the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim edifice. 
Okay. There's constant fighting about who's supposed to be there, Palestinians or Israelis. Who's supposed to be in home right there in Israel? Is it home for the Jews or is it home for the Muslim? The question remains, but he says, but he, he says this in Luke before it even becomes an issue. He says, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword. They're going to get put out of their home. Mm. Remember, the temple existed when Jesus came because he's the dweller among us God. The temple was existed during, during that time. But when he died, by, by, by about 35 years after he died, the temple was destroyed. And then he says, Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so there, there, even though we understand that the Muslim faith is heresy, Although we understand that, we understand it's heresy, but it is prophecy. God, God, God said that it would happen. This is what we see on the news every day. They're fighting, and they're fighting there because the, the Jews are saying, no, this is where God promises to be. But they're saying, no, this is our place because, because Allah said this is, this is where we're supposed to be. But the truth of the matter is, he said it would happen because he's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's allowed it to happen. And a lot of times we miss the fact that God is still God. And God is still profound. He's still magnificent. He's still God by himself. And since he's still who he said he would be, what he said was the truth. Now, he said this. He makes this. This is, this is not, this is not a vision. This is instruction. He says, but he says, the court which is in the temple leave out and measure it now for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall tread underfoot forty and two months. So he's saying, I need you to go build the temple. I'm so we're not playing this anymore. We're getting ready to move. Um, I'm about to knock on the door. I'm about to come down to earth. I am the dwell among us, God. And since I can't dwell in my people because my people ain't there anymore, I need you to build me a house. Since y'all didn't get the memo the first time, let's try it again. He, he's given them these instructions. Okay. He's given them these instructions and he's given them these instructions. They're about to build the temple, but they're going to leave the outer court out. Now, I don't know how many times I need to say you need to study the tabernacle to really understand biblical prophecy. Really, you need to understand the tabernacle to get a, a more accurate picture of Jesus, but you need to understand the tabernacle because the outer court, all, everybody could be in the outer court. A Gentile could come to the outer court. Now, a eunuch couldn't. A leper couldn't. Somebody that was sick couldn't. But, but for the most part, everybody could come in the outer court. If, if you had an inclination toward the unknown God, if you had an inclination toward the omniscient God, toward the, the shalom God, if you had an inclination toward who God is, the dwell among us God, if you had an inclination to him, you could come worship him and bring sacrifice to the outer court. But you had to be a Jew to go any further. And even further beyond that, you had to go, you could go into the inner court, but, but then you could go, you had to be a priest to go even further than that. And then to be, to go into the holies of holies, you had to be the high priest. But this area we're talking about was given unto all because God, that was to me a type that he was going to have an allowance of room for anybody to come unto him. Okay. Anybody to come unto him. Now, I want you to see this. Remember, I was telling you about those, the 42 weeks and all that good stuff. File, click, save what I just said about the temple. Okay. Remember that because I promise you, I'm going to come back to that. The 42 weeks. Uh, there's a seven year period that has to run off from the 70 period of Daniel. We've been talking about that for weeks. Okay. The seven year period is the last half of what most people consider the seven years of tribulation. That's, but that really the tribulation itself 
It's three and a half years. Now, still, there's a seven-year period. There's still the 70th week of Daniel. There's still the seven-year period, but there are three and a half years that are there of tribulation. Now, several times the Holy Spirit mentions it as a half week. You can see that in Daniel 9 and Revelation 12, 14. It mentions those half weeks as time, times, and dividing of time, okay? Now, I want you to understand this. In the original Aramaic and in different languages, there's a single, so time, there's a plural, times, and then a dual, dividing of time. Well, see, in English, we would use a word that, 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 that would be synonymous to like both, but because in the sense of time, there isn't a word that would be like both where it would it indicate to us two, they say the dividing of time. What that really means is that there's a single, there's a plural, and there's a dual, okay? In the dual dividing of time, that would be half of our um, seven years of tribulation, all right? I hope you're following me. Twice in the book of Revelation, it speaks of the half-week period as 42 weeks, okay? It also refers to that period as 1,260 days, okay? The key here I want you to see is that we're talking about a literal, literal period of time, all right? The 69 weeks were precise, so we can believe that this is precise. The tw- I mean, the 69 weeks were so precise that it uh, predicted the entrance of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem about to the very day. And since it predicted him down to the very day, I need you to understand that since it predicted him down to the very, very day, why would we think that if he tells us 1,260 days, that it would be anything more or anything less? Okay. And I, that's just my belief. God's judgment is precisely measured. God is a, preci- a precision God. And what I've learned about God is either God is on time when he says he's coming or he's early. Okay. And if you put a time period on him, well, he didn't say he was coming at that time. That was you. Okay. Now, I want you to also notice that the temple occurs three times in the New Testament. I said this earlier, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians, and right here. Now, in right here, they're preparing to build a temple. Okay. They have young men in tra- training right here, right here, right here. We're talking about revelation 11, but I want you to come back to 2019. Okay. In 2019, right here, they're preparing to build the temple. Okay. They have young men in training. They've been working on wa- weaving Royal vestments since the eighties and nineties. But what's interesting to me, they've been having this conversation since the nineties, but it still hadn't been rebuilt. There's continual talk. Every time they have an election, that the question is, will this president bring in, is he going to, is he going to bring in, um, the temple? If he's not going to bring in the temple, that's not a huge voting part. That I mean, they have been having this conversation since the eighties and the nineties, but yet they haven't built the temple yet. And they haven't rebuilt the temple yet because I don't believe God has given them the go ahead. It's kind of like David, you know, we can run back to that. David wanted to build the temple. He wanted to bring the temple, build, build the temple, but God said, you got too much blood on your hands, boy. And since you got too much blood on your hands, somebody else is going to have to build a temple. It was not for a lack of wanting to build the temple. It was not for a lack of, of desire to please God. It was the fact that God said, no, you ain't the one. And so I think when God gives the go ahead, he will provide the provision like he does in our lives. When God has ordained something, it moves. When God is not ready, it does not. It doesn't matter how hard we fight, how much we kick against the pricks. It doesn't matter what we do. When God has not ordained it, when God has not said, yes, you can go ahead, it doesn't move. All right. Now, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of debate about where the temple is actually supposed to stand. Okay. Now, obviously, it's going to stand on the temple mount. That's obvious. That's where it's going to be. But that's a 35-acre mound. 
Okay, that's 35 acres of where it is. The building is not 35 acres. So there's, but there's a lot of a debate about where the temple is actually going to be. Um, then now the traditional view is where the present Dome of the Rock stands. And like I said, the, the, the Dome of the Rock is a Muslim edifice. It's where they worship. Um, that's why, you know, it was interesting to me that, you know, the, the city would be given to Gentiles. Um, and he makes this statement. And, and, and what's interesting to me, to me this is the city is given to Gentiles. This is Old Testament. Uh, it wasn't until years later that the Muslim faith presents itself and, and Muhammad tries to p- take credit for being the other, the other comforter or the Holy Spirit, lies we tell. Um, but he, he tries, to, he tries, tries to take comfort, and so a lot of them believe that, you know, that that's where they're supposed to be, that that's the next phase, that is the will of God, and that is simply not my belief, all right? Simply not my belief. Well, that's where the Dome of the Rock stands. So that, but that's a traditional view is that they're going to have to go to war with the Muslims, which they're always at war with the Muslims, knock down the Dome of the Rock and rebuild the temple, that Jesus will come back in. And then, yeah, he's going to do what he does. But there's another view. There's another view. Dr. Asher, Asher Colfin is his name. He published that the temple actually stood about 100 meters to the north of the Dome of the Rock. But he, if he's right, the dome would actually be in the outer court, which would make this particular verse that we're studying, Revelation 11 and 2, <laughs> make a whole lot of sense, all right? His, he, the, he, as, as we understood it, the conclusion that he drawn would be it, that, that this portion would be cast out anyway because the outer court would be where the Dome of the Rock is. Now, let's go back and read the verse, okay? Let's, I, I want you to see this. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto Gentiles, and the holy city shall be tread underfoot forty and two months. In other words, what his findings would suggest is that he's got, that the temple would be built next door to the Muslim Dome of the Rock. That was that's what his findings based on what he's what he's found. Okay? And 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 and, and it would be because that's not dedicated space. It's not for the Jew. And you know, he's coming not for just the redemption of the Christian, but the Christian, the good's gone. <laughs> yeah. He's redeeming the earth, he's reclaiming the earth, getting the title deed to the earth, but he's coming because he made a promise to the Jew. All right. If he's right, that would be kind of interesting. Now, what's attractive about that is that they wouldn't have to bother the Dome of the Rock. Maybe they wouldn't have to go to war with the, temp- with the, with the Muslims, but they're always at war with the Muslims. But what's, what's, that's attractive for somebody living in the United States. That's attractive for somebody who's living in Africa. That's attractive for somebody who's living in Europe. That's attractive for somebody who's living in Australia. That's attractive for somebody who's living in Asia who is removed from that region. But if you're living right there in Jerusalem, that's not an attractive view. That's not, that's not attractive because if you're Muslim, you don't want the Jews anywhere near you. And if you're a Jew, you do not want to pass by the Dome of the Rock when you go to worship. And so it's an attractive view to us. It would make this verse make sense. But hey, now there's a third view. There's a third view because there's an architect named Tuvia Naji who found some discrepancies while making a third, making a 3D model of the temple site. Now, uh, he has about a dozen evidences that the temple should be about 100 meters to the south because of the bedrock lowers. And that would place the Holy of Holies uh, where the Alakaz fountain is. Now, there's a lot of evidence to point that direction. Now, where are they going to build the temple? You know, we're just going to have to see. I'm going to tell you this much. Okay. I'm going to I'm just going to say, I'm going to tell you this much. I don't want to be here. <laughs> I feel like I say that at least once a, once a podcast. I don't, I don't plan to be here. 
I don't want to be here. If they start building the temple, I'm going to start looking at heaven like, uh, <laughs> TikTok, <laughs> come get us. Uh, but that, that's, that's just, but you know, that's, I'm telling you, that's, that's, that's where the research lends itself. A lot of people are interested in, in understanding that they're there. They want to see what happens, what, where, 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 how is God going to cause it to unfold and all that good stuff. And so there is a lot of evidence that points at each, each direction. What actually happens, we'll just have to see. Now, now, verse three. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. There you go. There's that that twelve hundred and sixty days, twelve hundred sixty days uh, that I talked about, right? Now, the, we just talked a lot about this temple and them rebuilding this temple and how much debate there is about this temple. But the destiny of the temple is to be defamed. That, that the destiny, the destiny of the temple is to be defamed. Okay. How do I know that? How do I know that? In verse two, he says, "And the, hundred, the holy city shall be tread under underfoot for forty-two months." That's 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 the half a year. The the destiny of the temple to be is to be. Why would you God have us build with them build? Because I don't plan on being here. Have them build this temple as a, the dwell among you, God, and you you just gonna let them destroy the temple? But he says that. He kind of, he says that, he says that I will destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. Now we understand that to be resurrection, but maybe it has a duplicity of meaning. Maybe, maybe it does. We'll see. But he says like, but, 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 but let's focus, let's focus. And he says, I will give power unto my witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothing sackcloth. Now the destiny of the temple, like I said, is to be defamed. That, and that's hard to me, but why, why? Why would you send two witnesses? Hmm. Why would you send two witnesses? Do y'all remember when Moses uh, led the children of Israel into the wilderness and God told him to strike the rock and the water flows? Then it happens again and the Lord tells him to speak to the rock. And then he gets angry. And he gets angry and instead of speaking to it, he strikes it. They get the water. But he calls him to the side and God says, hey, boy, you are out the game. You're not going to the promised land. I do not appreciate what you did, to, did there. And, you know, a lot of us read that passage. We're like, whoa, wait a minute. What happened to God of grace? What happened to God of mercy? He's been dealing with these folks. Why in the world? Wait a minute. Pump the brakes. But the first issue here is that Moses misportrays God. But the second thought, thought or the second thing makes the passage come together, makes it make sense, okay? The second thing, second thing, is that if effective, when he struck it first and would have spoken to it the second time, he would have accurately portrayed the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. Paul alludes to it in 1 Corinthians 10, and, 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 but if he would have done it, we would have had another type to reference. But because he was in flesh, because he had made up his own mind about how he was going to go about things, because he had gone his, to his own way, gone his own lengths, he misinterprets, he mistells who God is. And when he does that, he misportrays God. And he, lose, he, he makes the Holy Spirit, he doesn't allow the Holy Spirit to do his entire job. Now, I want you to also remember he's allowed to see the promised land. But then scripture says that God buries him there. 
Doesn't say that the people bury him in there or that it's given to a man that he gets a job. God buries him there. His ministry is interrupted. He does not get to fulfill the fullness of his job. Then Joshua takes over and he, he sends two spies. And that makes me ask a question, why he didn't send 12 like Moses? But then again, the 10 that he sent, weren't, they weren't worth a whole bunch. And then they accused God of a whole lot of foolery. And I guess the, <laughs> it, it proved the two were, were great. But the real reason, okay, the real reason that he sends two spies is that two is the amount of witness record, required according to the law in a legal trial. You can check that in Deuteronomy 17, 6 and in Matthew 18. But there were, and, 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 and there, so there are two amount. That's, that's the legal amount for a trial in the law, according to the, the, the Jewish law. Now, I also want you to notice that there were two angels at the resurrection and two angels at the ascension and two angels at Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and that these two men who are going to be raised are going to be witnesses and prophets of God. Okay. Two men. Now the church is missing. All right. I want you to notice that the church is missing. So these are not folk that are on the earth. These, these are some people that he is going to send specifically for this purpose. All right. The church is missing. We're gone. We're sitting in the balcony, uh, sipping, uh, I'm sipping on orange juice and worshiping God and asking Adam and Eve why. <laughs> but you know, but, but the church is missing, but these two are coming. These are, these are going to be, these are going to be people who are spe sent specifically to earth for the purpose. But these guys, these guys are going to be called for such a time as this to do what God has called them to do for this succinct purpose. Okay. Now some believe, and it is my, my conviction that these guys, um, are called in the first half of the seven years. The middle of the week is the abomination and desolate, the, the abomination, desolation. And they, they are, these guys are killed as well. And so it is the belief that this, this happens in the first three and a half years and they come right. All right. Now I also want you to take note because I said we, we're dividing this based on timeline. These men are clothed in sackcloth. That's a very old Testament thing. That's not characteristic of the church age. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's not characteristic of the church age at all. All right. Verse four. These are two olive trees and two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Olive trees, olive trees. I want you to look at olive trees better translated as trees of oil. It's an echo of Zechariah four, Zechariah four. It, it really breaks it down. I, I was reading that this morning. I was sitting with it, but in Zechariah four, Zerubbabel and his priest, Joshua, this is a different Joshua reestablished Israel at 10, rebuild the temple after the Babylonian captivity. Um, they are likened to two olive trees and the two lampstands. It's not candlesticks here. Uh, and actually the, 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 Proper translation would have been uh, lampstands and not candlesticks. I don't know why they did that. Uh, but a lampstand in, 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 I guess, in contrast to a candlestick is fed by oil. That's profound imagery. Okay. That's profound imagery because of this, because they're trees of oil. That means that they have an endless supply of oil because they produce oil and a lampstand needs oil to burn. And so a, a lampstand that's connected, uh, a lampstand that's connected to oil, an oil tree would be like having a constant supply of the Holy Spirit, not having to question whether the Holy Spirit would, would answer or whether God would show up and whether he would move this, that they would be a, a um, it would be an idiom of having the Holy Spirit or the anointing. 
Okay, which is very much so kind of sort of a New Testament thing. The anointing existed, okay, in the Old Testament, but you remember the Holy Spirit rested upon people in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit dwelt within, which means they had they had a constant a constant uh, flow of anointing. So he says these are two olive trees and two candle stands, candlesticks standing before God in the earth. These guys had a connection to God and they had authority. How do we know they had authority? Verse five. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must be in this manner killed. Whoa. And then he goes on to show you how much power he's going to give them. He says, and if any man will hurt them. Oh, I just read that. He says, these have power to shut heaven and that it not rain in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. God was confident in these guys. God was confident in these guys. These two men, when he sends them to earth, he knows they're going to get business done. He's not going to have to coach them. It's like they've been here before. Okay. Confident in these guys. Now there's a lot of speculation about who these guys are. A lot of speculation, a lot of speculation. Now, and there's been a lot of speculation because in Zechariah, we kind of see the same prophecy. Similar, similar prophecy, but it, which tells us in John 1 19, and I'm going to read the new, new, new revised standard version. He says, this is the tef- testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer of those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, what do you think about this? I just read to you a conversation they had with, with John. John the Baptist, that is. If you leave Jerusalem and go to the Jordan, that's about a half a day's drive in a car. Okay, there were no cars in that day. Imagine how long that walk was, a half a day's drive, that walk. Imagine how long that walk, that walk, and people were coming in by groves, groves, so much so that it shook up the Levites and the priests. Who in the world is this guy that's baptizing in the name of the Lord? Who is this guy telling people to repent? Talking about he's the one crying in the wilderness to make straight the paths of the Lord. Who is this guy? Now, there's a legend. And this is a legend. This is not Bible. I'm just going to talk you talk about conjecture. And I just want to let you know what people say out there about it. This is a, le- this is a, this is a legend, okay? Not legend, L-E-G-E-N-D. Not Bible. This is a legend. There's a legend that when Elijah is translated from the mountain, it falls on Elijah. Well, that's Bible, okay? Then the legend is that when Elijah was finished, this is where the legend begins, uh, that there was no one worthy to take the mantle and the girdle, and that he's instructed to place it in the golden altar by the holies of holies. And when Zechariah heard that they were having a boy, he was instructed to bring it home. 30 years later, we find John baptizing in the Jordan, Jordan and he's wearing the girdle. But that's just a legend. Now, what's interesting to me is, ironically, though the Ark of the Covenant was not in Herod's temple, but the golden altar was. Um, and that would kind of be, that type of thing would explain 
the crowd. He explained how he was drawing people into the middle of nowhere to be baptized. It would explain it, but it's not Bible. And so I'm not going to say that, that, that it, that's what my conviction is. I just think it, it's colorful and it makes it convenient and it makes it make sense. But, hey, I don't know if that's Bible or not because it's simply legend. And, and, and I, I want to say this. You can listen to legend. You can read things that are other than the Bible. But I, I, you, it is important to differentiate what thus saith the Lord and what people say about him. Okay? Because a lot of times we will, we will get legend and, and start quoting it like it's scripture. Um, legend sometimes makes things make sense and sometimes it may be become your belief, but that doesn't mean that is what thus saith the Lord. And that's not what it's meant to be taught. Sometimes it helps us understand better. And sometimes it just gives us insight. Um, and so there's no, there's nothing wrong with knowing what the legends say, because sometimes legends work. You know, the, the only way I know about my family, my family lineage, because none of my family members have been published other than me. Um, and since I'm still living and I'm in my twenties, um, uh, none of them have been published. So I, I don't, I don't have a, a an accurate record of what was, I, I I've heard the legends, heard the stories. And so storytelling often, that's actually how they pass down the Bible. But I will say it didn't make it into the canon of scripture. And since it didn't make it into the canon of scripture, we cannot hang our head on it. All right. I think it's colorful. I think it makes things make sense uh, so much so that I was talking to God about it. I said, now, if this was true, what do you got to get to get that? <laughs> but, 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 but that's the point is it's just a legend. It's just a legend. Now, but I also want you to notice about the verse that we read in the verses we read in first John, uh, that they were expecting three different people. They were expecting Messiah, uh, Elijah, or just a prophet. Why would they ask, are you Elijah? Why would that be necessary? Why, why would you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they would ask about the Messiah because they've been expecting the Messiah, but why would they ask about Elijah? They would ask about Elijah because they were expecting Elijah as well. Okay. Malachi four, five, end of, end of the old Testament it says, lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Ooh, wow. And he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. And so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. Now, first thing I want you to notice, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great, terrible, great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Remember I told you we're dividing the seven years into half. Okay. And that really the, the tribulation tribulation is the last half. And so they would come in the first half. Boy, that would make sense, would it? Would it not? Um, and but but they're expecting Elijah. He says, "I'm going to send Elijah back, and I'm going to send Elijah, and Elijah's going to come back and do some good." The old—that's the end of the Old Testament, and it comes, it comes as a close to the Old Testament, and they the, with the promise of Elijah, and the Jews are still expecting him to this day. And if you go to any Orthodox Jew's house. During Passover, they leave a chair open for Elijah because they're expecting Elijah. Now, there comes a couple of statements Jesus makes that would suggest that John was Elijah. Hmm, was John Elijah? Hmm, that's a good question. He came in the spirit of Elijah. He was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Was he the fulfillment of the prophecy? The question, hmm, it lingers, but I would have to say no. Let's read the verse again. Okay, let's read the verse again. He says, Malachi 445, let's read it again. He says, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land of the curse. I've got to ask, he's going to come before the terrible day of the Lord, not the joyous day of his redemption. Okay. And I guess one could say that it was a terrible day when Jesus was crucified, but it was a happy day when he was risen. It was an even happier day 
when the day of Pentecost fell. And when I think the terrible day of the Lord, I think, I'm thinking when he comes to judge the living and the dead, when he comes to make cause judgment on the earth. To me, that sounds like the revelation of John or the prediction of Daniel. That's what it sounds like to me. But then you've got to also ask the question, did he turn the hearts of, of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents? No. Did John the Baptist do this? He did not. He didn't. He didn't do it. Um, and so understanding this prophecy makes us believe that Elijah would be one of the two guys that God sends to do this work. Okay? Now, there are two ministries that are interrupted in the Old Testament, two ministries, not lives, two ministries that are interrupted. Elijah, who has a wonderful ministry with a great handicap, and when I say handicap, that's a golfing term, okay? And then we just kind of add points, take points away to kind of make give you an even playing field so that maybe one day you possibly could win. But Elijah had a wonderful ministry, a great handicap, and, 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 and you know, let's think about it. Elijah has this showdown in the middle of, of the wilderness and, and at, at, at the altars, and the... It's a showdown for once and for all. It's Baal God or it's God God. And so they get up there and, and all these prophets of Baal are up there chanting and, and dancing around their altars trying to make Baal do something. How can you make something you may do something? <laughs> but I digress. They're trying to make Baal do something. And Elijah's sitting around mocking him. He says, well, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe you should scream louder. Maybe he's deaf. <laughs> you know, all of these things. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you should wake him up. He does all of these things. And finally he calls it to a halt. And he says, you know what? Good gather around. Let me show you what a real God God looks like. <laughs> Let me show you what a real God looks like. Somebody with some real power. Let me show you what it looks like. And so he says, you know what? Let me add a handicap to this. And he says, let me add a handicap to this. He says, go get me some water. And he doused the altar in water. He says, give me some more. No, 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 that ain't enough. He doused it in water. Now we understand that water and fire don't go together. We use water to put out fire. They can't coexist. And so he says, I'm going to prove to you how good my God is and how weak and fake and phony yours is. Okay. He's, he says that, he says that, and he calls down fire. He says, spirit of the living God. <laughs> rain down fire from heaven and the fire rains down from heaven. And when it hits the altar, not only does it burn the altar up, it burns the trench of water around it. He's the water the fire sucks it up. It's contrary to the science that God created because God is not subject to his creation. His creation is subject to him. Calls it down. He had a great handicap and then he has, he has the priest slaughtered. And so Elijah being the guy, his ministry was interrupted. God takes him. He, that means he still has work to be done. He does a experience of a, 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 a physical death. Makes good sense to me. But the second guy, the second guy that is going to be the witness, that's going to be the prophet is often debated. Some point to Enoch because he never dies. And based off of Hebrews 9.27, uh, he says, just as it is appointed for mortals to die once and after the judgment, run, uh, he says, after that, the judgment, which suggested it would need to be Enoch because Enoch was taken. But I think a lot of people misinterpret that verse because there are several who died twice. J uh, Jairus' daughter dies twice. Lazarus's dies twice several other people with whom he saves they die twice and what i need what 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 we what we must understand is that is that that's a renunciation of reincarnation 
okay? That's a renunciation that, that we're not coming back as other people, that, that once we, we pass the test of earth, we're moving on either to hell or to heaven, period, okay? But Moses has an unfinished ministry, okay? Moses has an unfinished ministry. The gifts given here, I want you to notice, two are ascribed to Elijah. Power to shut the waters. You remember, he, uh, he makes a, pronounce, a, pr a pronouncement on the land, and he says it will not rain. And he doesn't consult God. He just he calls down rain, and because him and God were so close, he says it shall not rain, and it doesn't rain. And he calls down fire from heaven onto the, the, the altar. Both of those are things that are mentioned here that they will have the power to do. And James and Jesus, two witnesses, haha, <laughs> irony, both mentioned that Elijah was the one who shut the heavens and ended the drought. The heavens were sealed for three and a half years. Oh, irony, irony, irony. Well, you can, you know, you can look that up in James 5, 17 and Luke 4, 25. Now, but, and the other two gifts are ascribed to Moses, turning the water to blood. Remember that? Smiting the earth with plagues. All right. Things that would make good sense for it to be those two. And these guys, these guys were so much in contrast to the church, so much in contrast to the church because they were bold. They called down fire. They had priests slaughtered. They, there wasn't a whole lot of turning other cheeks going on with these guys because these guys were not, they were Jews. They, they were not of the church. And ministers of the church were supposed to be harmless. We're supposed to do no harm. We're supposed to, to help and, 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 to, and to be light and salt. And, you know, that to me, these are just differentiations. I told you, file click save, because I was coming back to it. I'm weaving. I'm weaving. <laughs> um, but but the, the ministers of the church were supposed to be, be harmless. And so we, we would understand these guys are going to come from Jewish period. Okay? They're going to come from the Jewish period. But I, I, we, we, we can look at them, and it is my conviction that it will probably be Elijah and Moses. If God decides to use somebody else, that's fine, because I'm not going to be here. Uh, but, but, I, but from what I see, that's what I believe, okay? And I want you to see how much in contrast these guys are from the minister of the church, that in Luke 9, 54 and 56, they were upset at some guys, and they, the, the ministers of the church wanted to call down fire from heaven, and he rebukes them. That's not what we do. That's not what we do, because there's a different standard expected during the church period. All right, let's move on. Let's keep going. Now, there are also people who believe that it might be the Apostle John, the guy who pins Revelation, okay? The guy who God comes to on the island of Patmos to show all of these things, they believe. Some people believe that it would be him, and they believe it because remember last time in Revelation 10, at the very close, he's told he will prophesy again. And these are two prophets that are being called. So, you know, maybe it would be John. Maybe. And then there are many who believe that when Peter asks about John, Jesus responds, was it to you if he tarries until I return? And so there was a rumor that floated around in John 21 that he would never die. And John approaches that, that subtopic, but John did die. John died. But there was another one of those legends. You remember, legends are not word. They're just things that people pass down to say, but they didn't make it to the canon of Scripture, so I don't know if it's real or not. But there's a legend that when he was a bishop in Ephesus, they tried to boil him in oil, and nothing happened. And so they exiled him to Patmos because it scared him so, black, so bad. But that's a legend. I don't know if that's true or not. So don't go tell go telling people that Reverend Kojo is teaching you uh, things that are not in the Bible. 
I'm just telling you what the legend says, okay? <laughs> now, but the problem here, that then the problem that John presents is that John is a part of the church, which means that John is supposed to be in heaven, okay? John, I mean, John would be a plausible person, would he not? But he's part of the church. All right, Matthew 16, 28, and then I'm going to continue reading into Matthew 17, and I'll keep reading. He says, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming into this kingdom. Six days later, this is where Matthew 17 begins, Jesus took him, uh, Peter, James, Peter and James and his brother and John, and led him up into a high mountain by themselves. And when he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly he appeared to them, Moses and Elijah, hmm, talking with him. Then Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome with by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and be, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And as the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They asked the question, y'all. He replied, Elijah is indeed coming. And will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. But they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. First thing I want you to notice is that the spirit of Elijah came. And Elijah is, is soon to return. Okay, that's the first thing I want you to see. Is that the spirit of Elijah John the Baptist did have, whether he was wearing the, man, the mantle and the girdle or not. The spirit of Elijah came. He came in John. But he was not, he was not Elijah. And Elijah is to come. Jesus himself says this. This is Jesus speaking. Now, I want you to also notice that Peter is super impressed. Peter is so impressed that in his first and second letters, in 1 Peter 1, uh, 1, 10 through 12, and in 2 Peter 1, 6 through 18, in both letters he makes allusions to this experience. And if you read it carefully, what the three were talking about was, was what was going to happen in the second coming. Okay, nice of you. You go read it for yourself and tell me what you think. Now in Jude, now Jude is Jesus' brother that didn't, wasn't down with him when he was walking the earth. They said, look, my brother didn't lost it. And then when Jesus, you know, dies and is resurrected, he realizes, oh, my brother was really the, the Messiah, ha. Huh? And he comes to him and so Jude writes a fairly very short book. Um, but Jesus' brother, he makes this incidental allusion in Jude, and Jude is only one chapter, he mentions that Michael was disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. Let's read it. Jude, Jude 1, verse 8. He says, Yet in the same way, these dreamers also defile the flesh, reject authority, and slander the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the, the devil and disputed about the body of Moses, he did not dare to bring a condemnation of slander against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people slander whatever they do not understand, and they are destroyed by those things that, like irrational animals, they know by instinct. Now, the interesting thing to me here, okay, 
is that he acknowledges the power of Satan. But even more so, he glorifies God by saying, I'm not certain who will win here. Because you understand, you know, Michael, the archangel, a.k.a. soldier boy, <laughs> and Gabriel, the chief messenger, and Lucifer were all on even footing. They were highly elevated in heaven. Well, I guess the other two are. Lucifer had got put out. But they were, they were both highly elevated guys. They both had status. They were both on top. And... And so they're, they're, they both have, have authority. And so Michael does not try to fight him, even though they're technically kind of even. What he does is he says, the Lord rebuke you, because I know that he'll fight my battles. I know that where I am weak, he is strong. And I understand that you got some funky stuff going on. You came down here and you put together an army, blah, 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 blah. The Lord rebuke you. All right. But I, I have to ask, I have to dig a little bit deeper. The reason I brought you here is why why does why does Satan want my, why does he want the body? And why does Michael want it? And I wonder if it has something to do with it. I wonder does it does does the Satan think because God fires him, so it seems he doesn't get fired, he doesn't die. Does he think that he won? Does he think he won Moses? And is Michael sitting here wanting the body, realizing that they're gonna need this again? <laughs> We're gonna need this again? But hey, I, you know, but this is all conjecture. Could it, could it be? Could it be? Now, some also think that John the Baptist will be the other guy. And it's plausible because the Old Testament ends with John the Baptist, according to Luke. But John the Baptist dies. So, but it, it could be. It could be. This, that, 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 them dying does not lend the fact that God could not revive them or rebring them back. I just think that's interesting. Okay, we're going to move on through Revelation. Verse 7. Verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and they shall overcome them and kill them. Now, this is the first mention of the beast of the bottomless pit. This is the Antichrist. This is a literal guy with supernatural capability, demonically inclined, not Jesus inclined, but demonically inclined. And I don't think the world is ready for that. I don't think the world is prepared for that. I don't think they're ready for somebody who that they, they can talk off to, do what they want to, and this dude can do hexes and spells and, you know, all that nasty stuff. But I want you to notice that even though he's demonically inclined and that he's this beast and he's got all of this nasty stuff associated with him, you won't be able to touch, he won't be able to touch these guys until their ministry is completed. He says, and when they finish their testimony, then the beast is going to show up and then the beast is going to kill them. And, 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 and then this is me reading in between the lines. Then they're going to celebrate. Okay. Then they're going to celebrate. Verse eight, he says, and their bodies shall lie in the street of that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, which also our Lord, where also our Lord was crucified. Spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. But Jesus was crucified in, in Jerusalem. I guess the Holy Spirit city isn't so holy after all. But we've seen that anyway. All they do is fight. <laughs> So all they do is fight, 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 fight. But it's spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Now, Jerusalem is alluded to as, in, as Sodom in Isaiah 1, Je Jeremiah 23, Deuteronomy 32, and in, as Egypt in Ezekiel 23. 
And it's typical of modern day Jerusalem. Like I said, it's all to do is fight, 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 fight. The dome of the rock is sitting right there where the temple should be. Like I think it's clear that there, there is some nastiness going on. There is some demonic activity happening there. Even though they consider, we still consider it the holy city because of what happened there. War abounds. And many Messianic Jews, now this is interesting. Many Messianic Jews believe that the Jews in Jerusalem are not the real Jews, but are probably the synagogue of Satan, which makes the next verse make sense. Verse nine, and they, they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. So he succeeds in killing these two. And I bet he feels great about it. I bet they're, they're drinking kegs and smoking weed and doing all kinds of stuff, celebrating the fact that these guys who came to tell about Jesus. Now, you think about it. You think about it. When you're doing your dirt, let's be real. When you're doing your dirt, the last thing you want is somebody to come tell you about how God is not pleased. You don't want nobody talking about repent, turn from your wicked ways. You're like, let me do my dirt in peace. And so you've got this constant reminder of what you do not want to hear. You heard the Christians talking about how good God was and how you need to turn your life around and, and how they had their churches and all of these things and all of it. You heard all of that for years and years and years and love your neighbor and do this, but you didn't, your heart was not so inclined. It, it was always hardened and turned away from God. You had all of that stuff going on. And so these folks are in the streets happy. They're dead. The world is so happy that they don't bury them. They look at the bodies and consider them a trophy. We've killed the last of them. The Christians are gone. And now these guys who've been down here trying to tell us to turn from our wicked ways, they're gone too because we killed them. And I believe that it empowers them to believe that they can wage war on God because Armageddon's coming. We're going to talk about it in a couple couple episodes, but I think it gives them the ability to think, well, maybe we can, maybe we can have the ability or the authority to go and beat up on God. Maybe we can defeat him and win and live how we want to live. They don't bury them. And when they say that the nations the people, the kindreds, will see their dead bodies. I want you to think technology. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago, but I want you to think technology. How on our phones, we can see everything. We can see live streams from anywhere in the world. If somebody opens a live stream, we can see it. But this was written 2,000 years ago. That was impossible to imagine 2,000 years ago. How could the nations watch something? We struggle to get across town. We don't have cars. If we don't have a donkey, boy, we ain't going far at all. This is how we know we're getting closer and closer and closer because it says the world will watch and the people of kindreds and people and tongues and nations shall see their bodies three days and a half. The whole world will watch. How else than through the technology by which we have? How else? In Birmingham last week, a little girl went missing, and unfortunately, the little girl was uh, found dead a couple of days ago. Unfortunately, that happened, and it made my stomach turn, but the moment the Amber Alert was released, 
that Amber Alert went out and it, it it woke everybody up. Everybody was posting on Twitter and Facebook uh, because there was this Amber Alert out for this little girl. And our phones all went off at the same times, loud, interrupted what we were doing. Something off of like a movie, how when they when these kings and dictators speak to people and they interrupt what's going on, it, it interrupted everybody. Everybody's device went off. There was an Amber Alert. Interrupted TV, interrupted our phones, interrupted everything that we were doing to let us know that little girl was missing. Great use of technology. But the technology that we consider to be a great use will be used to watch these guys lie in the streets. Wow. Verse 10. And they that dwelt upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry. They shall send gifts one to another because the these two prophecies tormented them that dwelt on the earth. To think of dwelling, think of dwelling as not physically present, but hopefully that we are, we are not dwelling, but we're passing through. Dwelling would be people who have subscribed to the way of living on the earth. Who think that they're their own God or worship the demonic. Just think of it like that. Verse 11. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them, which they saw. Imagine a celebration. Y'all, y'all imagine folks are partying. They are doing all kinds of stuff. Sidebar. I'm supposed to be in New Orleans right now as I record this for the third time and for business. And I'm, I'm not going. It, it happens to be like um, Halloween weekend. And I'm just not really into the whole Halloween demonic thing. And I'm especially not trying to do it in, in, in New Orleans at all, right? I'm supposed to be there for business, but I really don't want to go because of a lot of things that are going to be going on in the city. Imagine folks worshiping in the demonic. This is what made me think of it. Them doing the whole voodoo thing and them trying to be uh, big and bad and doing all the stuff that they do. Imagine them being worshiping and celebrating evil. And the guys that they're celebrating that they have killed get up oh their bodies they left in the street they were probably kicking them and watching the blood come out their eyes rolled in the back of their heads and they are happy about it your evil is is oozing out of you just as you thought you had triumphed they get up they get up because the spirit of life from God entered them and they get up, they stand up on their feet. I imagine they dust themselves off. And great fear fell upon all of them that saw. And then I like what happens in verse 12. It says, and then they heard a great voice from heaven saying, come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies beheld them. Now think back to Jesus. When it, when it was Jesus, Jesus' friends beheld them. This time it's their enemies who are watching. Come up here. I'll prepare a table in front of all of your enemies. Ooh, surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of life. And you dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Come up here. They're getting ready to dwell in the house of the Lord. Thus he prepared a table before them in front of their enemies. Ooh, come on, scripture. Um, the same words he speaks to John, which is idiomatic of the church's rapture. Come up here. You know, a lot, a lot of them, we want to hear the pop, pop, pop. But what happens when we hear the Holy Spirit tug on our spirit and say, come up here, and we just... <laughs> you know, go up, go up there. That's, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting for me to think of. But, but also, let's think resurrection, because this is what happened. These guys are being resurrected. Let's think resurrection. The first and the second 
let's not think of them as events, but let's think of them as categories. Jesus, of course, was part of the first resurrection. The church is part of the first resurrection. These guys are part of the first resurrection. We'll see a second resurrection later. Okay. Let's go back. Let's keep moving. Verse 13. And the same hour, there was a great earthquake. And the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000. And the remnant were affrighted and gave the glory to the God of heaven. Another earthquake. You remember one of the six seals was opened. Uh, there, was, there was an earthquake. And then there will be another earthquake when the seventh bowl is poured out. And then there's an earthquake. Uh, here's right here. Now, I, let's just think about American because most of my listeners are American. The Californians are always scared about that San Andreas fault. There always seems to be an earthquake in there. And we, we joke that one day there's not going to be a California. It's just going to float away and it's not going to be part of us anymore. But there's a way bigger fault um, where the Jordan is. It's called Rift Valley. It goes all the way down to the sea, uh, down to the Dead Sea and to Africa. It's the largest one in the world. And that's my imagination that that's where that, that, that would, that would hit. Unless God decides to make all of them move and that would be wild. Can you imagine? But I also want you to see that that when you see 10th, that ought to jump out in your face. You see a 10th, you know, that's God's portion. A 10th of the men. Ooh, a 10th of the men die. Okay. A 10th of the men because a 10th belongs to God. Now, when I think about that, what I think about is they just killed God's prophets, God's witnesses, God's children. Now you remember in scripture, he says, woe unto you who would deal with any of these little ones. And I know a lot of times we like to think of those as children. And I do like to think of those as children as well, but all of us are children in the sight of God. And since all of us are children in the sight of God, they just dealt shrewdly with God's children. And he said, it would be worse for you to put a millstone around your neck than for you to mess with one of mine. And so he strikes the earth with an earthquake. And as he strikes the earth with an earthquake, he takes his portion, he takes 10%. Because you just screwed up. And that's just the beginning. There's much more to come. Okay? Now, what you also notice is 7,000, that the Greek would read, 7,000 names of men were killed. And that would suggest that, there, that these 7,000 were men of prominence. Men who considered themselves untouchable, men who thought that, that they could not be touched, that they could run from famine and peril because they had enough money and where there was enough that they could pay top dollar, 7,000 7, names of men were killed, 7,000 men of prominence. Men who considered themselves untouchable. Now, I do want to say this because I don't want y'all saying stuff. The Greek here is weird. And some believe that the Greek, the Greek was translated from Hebrew. But I'm inclined to believe that it's, it's something deeper. I, I believe that the 7,000 names of men would suggest the prominence, which would make sense why God would strike the earth. It would make sense that that's why he would take them. That's just my prerogative. You can search the scriptures down and come to your own. All right. Verse 14. The second war is fat passed. Behold, the third will come quickly. Verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, what you see, the word kingdom is singular in the Greek. It's not plural. Okay, one kingdom. Now, I know what, I know what this version says, kingdoms, but the Greek says one kingdom, one world government. Ooh, okay. The kingdom of Satan 
is now officially under challenge. It's officially under challenge. Now, I want you to recall when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he offers him all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan asserts that he can give them to whomever he pleases. And Jesus never debated the authority. He simply says, worship the Lord God only. This pronouncement here is that he's about to take over. Satan is about, isn't about to give him anything. He's about to take what he created. He's, he is the God who created it. And man so foolishly was duped out of giving the dominion which God gave to them away. And so now Jesus is here to take the keys back. To take back what is rightfully his. This is a pronouncement that he is about to take over. I feel like I say put on your seatbelts every week, but put on your seatbelt belts. Jesus is at the helm. Now, I also want you to notice that the trumpet here that's being blown is a trumpet of an angel, and it's not the last trump, okay? This is not it. All right, let's move on. Verse 16. The four and twenty elders which sat before the throne of God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God. We're about to walk into threefold praise. Christ is supreme. Christ judges righteously, and he gives graciously. We're about to walk into praise and worship. And I love that it is the church, the four elders, the 24 elders that are leading worship because we have learned to worship. Sometimes we don't get it right, but we have learned to worship. The elders have fallen at their feet because they're getting the picture. All right. 17 saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and are to come because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. Now remember, in Revelation 4, we worship the creator. In Revelation 5, we worship the redeemer. Here we worship the conqueror and we worship the king. We talk about his power and his, that he's, he's reigning. And we worship him where he was and where he is and what he's going to do. We worship, they're worshiping God in his multiple personalities. They're worshiping God in his, his, in, in the multifaceted way of his being and his, his creation because they're seeing even more personalities of Jesus manifest. Okay. It's manifesting. They're beginning to see what we always presumed. All right. Verse 18, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and they should be given reward unto the servants of the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and should destroy them which are the earth. Now, destroy, I want us to think of that word more so as corrupt. And man... I want you to understand, cannot be an acceptable steward of the earth if he denies the owner. And so the nations get upset. But them getting upset is ridiculous. Why would you get upset? The nations get upset. And as they get upset, they don't understand that you can't be an acceptable steward of the earth if it denies the owner. That's why when I look at a lot of the things on a lot of these campaigns to take care of the earth, they talk about going green and, and by 2020 we want to be here. We want to be carbon neutral or carbon free by this age or by this day or, or X, Y, Z. They say all of these things, but you cannot be an acceptable steward of the earth if you deny the owner. Because the things that you're talking about are only surface, but the earth hmm, was made by a spiritual being. And it, er, it, it groans and it croaks by, yes, the things that we do physically, but it irks and it groans and it quakes because of what we do spiritually too. They get upset. 
they get upset. Now, the, this verse, in many ways, is a table of content to what's going to happen in the rest of the book. Okay, the wrath to come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and they should give a reward to the servants and the prophets, to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and that he'll destroy them which destroy the earth. It's like a table of contents. This is what's about to happen. But I also want to go back to this idea that the nations are angry because they want to have their own way. They want to have their own way. Psalm 2. Let's go to Psalm 2 really quickly. It says, why are the nations so angry? I'm reading the New Living Translation. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle and the rulers plot together against the Lord and against this anointed one. He says, let us break their trains, chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. Man, that sounds like society today at an alarming rate. Today I was reading an article. I was reading an article about the rebuilding of the temple because I was doing research for this because, you know, I needed to do research. And this was a major publication. This was not some jackleg publication that has all those weird ads. No, this was a major publication out of the United Kingdom and, 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 and talks about rebuilding the temple and this election that they have coming up. It was filed under the weird news subheading. The world, Satan has tried to make having a biblical worldview weird. Weird. Ain't that crazy? But what I also want you to see, verse 3 in the psalm we just read. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. Oh, they don't understand how delusioned they are, how enslaved they really are. They think they're enslaved to God, but they are enslaved to Satan. And they've been brainwashed to believe something crazy. Where we, we're headed, we're headed toward Armageddon. And what a lot of people don't understand is that Armageddon is a war of the world against God. The people are going to make an attempt to, to defeat and deny God. They're going to try to arm themselves above the one who made them, who knows their every thought, knows their every intention. They're going to try to fight a war against the only, th only being to ever love them in purity. Sad. Oh, it's sad. It's so sad. It's, it's so sad. It's sad. And the, I want you to think here, the wrath of God, the Lord scoffs at them and he rebukes them, terrifying them with fear, fierce anger and fury. It's so sad. The wrath of God. God is not emotional or temperamental or unjust, but he's passionate because he hates sin or discommunion with him. Which the wrath of God is, in, in, is, is directly against the wrath of Satan because wrath of Satan is temperamental and it's a show off and he's insecure. Oh boy, oh boy. And I want you to notice how much of it that's a direct contrast of the God of the Quran, who they swear is our God. How we know this is heresy. God is not emotional or temperamental, but he is passionate. And so he's going to handle his business 
in a way that changes the scales forever. Last verse. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in the temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voicings, voices and thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. Now this is the real Ark of the Covenant. This is not an earthly replica. It was opened. And when they opened the holy thing, the lightning and the voices and the thunderings came up. He is about to grab his power. He already has power, but he is about to hit this thing and hit it hard. That's what we are. That's what we are. It's, it's, it's going to be something else. Now, let me just go ahead and, and, and tell you, go ahead and read for chapter 12, okay, for next time. Read chapter 12 for next time. Study the woman, okay, study the woman. Uh, see if you can pull some things out, and we're going to talk about it. Until next time, this has been Bible School, and I am Reverend Kojo. Y'all be blessed. <laughs>